Nine, 60 seconds. Best recorders, high speed. Five. Open solo fuel four, vent. Open. Three, two, one, zero. Start. I would like to welcome you to a new episode of the podcast series Crossroads. I will be your host today. My name is Susanna Ohde. I'm a researcher and I work at the Institute of Sociology at the Czech Academy of Sciences. The podcast Crossroads is created through a collaboration between Alarm and the research program Global Conflicts and Local Interactions, which is funded by the AV21 strategy of the Czech Academy of Sciences. The series invites social scientists whose research addresses important topics and issues of our globalizing world. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Sylvia Tamale, who is a professor of law at Macquarie University, where she was the first female dean of the School of Law. She founded and serves as a coordinator of the Gender, Law and Sexuality Research Project at the School of Law. She is a leading African feminist scholar, lawyer and feminist activist. She has won several awards for her academic work and for defending the human rights of marginalized groups. She's a co-editor of the journal Feminist Africa, and she has been a visiting professor at academic institutions around the world. In 2021, she was awarded an honorary doctorate of law by the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Her latest book, Decolonization and Afrofeminism, was awarded in 2022 book prize from the Feminist Theory and Gender Section of the International Sociological Association. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Thanks for that elaborate introduction. One small correction. Mm. I retired from institutional academia last year, mm. so I'm no longer at Macquarie. Ah, yes. I didn't know. Yeah. Thanks for the correction. Let me start with my first question. So in 2020, you published the mentioned book, Decolonization and Afrofeminism, which brings together feminist and decolonial thoughts in an ambitious critical analysis combined with proposals for decolonial future-oriented reconstruction of knowledge, institutions, and social life in Africa. You wrote, and I quote, African feminisms have always stood between the hard rock of Western influence and domination and African relativism in disparagement. However, I would say that your book is a great and convincing reply to those who see feminism and women's emancipation as incompatible with decolonial focus on indigenous African knowledge and who understand decolonization as a return to a mythical pre-colonial time. So I would like to ask you if you can please explain to our listeners your understanding of the relationship between feminism and African knowledge and what is needed in order to avoid creating indigenous knowledge as a new hegemony and to combine feminism and decolonization as a politics of the future. Mm. Now, like, like all other aspects of African lives, the ideology behind knowledge that is imbibed, produced, and practiced by feminism on the continent is, in my view, very heavily influenced by coloniality. 
And by coloniality, I mean the legacies of colonialism that reshaped our consciousness, our logics, and our understanding. That coloniality reformulated local concepts such as morality, gender, sexuality, family, and so on. So for example, many African cultures accommodated sex ambiguity and fluidity. But when the colonialists arrived, they imposed their rigid gender ideologies, which are key for the maintenance of the heteropatriarchal capitalist system. In other words, it was critical for the imperialists to fully integrate Africa into the global exploitative economy. And they did this, in fact, they continue to do so very, very successfully through capturing our minds using instruments such as law, education, religion, and mass media. Uh, let me demonstrate, Suzanne, what I'm saying. Um, by insisting on a binary gender paradigm of gender, imperialists ensured that women's unremunerated labor within the so-called private sphere maintained the well-being of quote-unquote public workers, hence subsidizing capital by supplementing the wage deficits. In other words, profits are maximized through the unwaged caring work that women perform in the domestic arena, including nurturing children, cleaning, growing subsistence food crops, caring for the sick, and even dispensing TLC, you know, tender loving care, to her underpaid male partner. Unfortunately, mainstream feminism on the continent continues to be influenced by Western ways of knowing and thinking, seeking the liberation of African women based um, on the unchallenged framings of gender binaries, based on notions of equality, based on neoliberal individualism, materialism, and heteronormativity. So it would take a critical and particular consciousness of African feminism not to reproduce Eurocentric patterns and hierarchies. One um, that rejects universal claims to truth and fully understands that um, our indigenous African knowledge systems, which were destroyed by colonialism, potentially, potentially hold the key to the liberation of African women. In order to achieve gender justice, I think we need to rediscover and reclaim paradigms in our traditional cultures that were more accommodating, you know, more egalitarian. Our ancestors appreciated the interconnectedness and interdependence of everything. They fully understood that I am because we are, you know. That is the African notion of Ubuntu, that solidarity and spirituality that encompasses connections to others, to community and to nature. So 
the short answer, <laughs> that's a long-winded answer, but the short answer to your question about the relationship between feminism and African knowledge is that the latter, that is African knowledge, is a pathway for African feminists to think out of the box and to challenge the Western liberal boundaries of quote-unquote doing feminism. Do you know what I mean? You know, um, African knowledge makes sense at a deeper level to our realities and brings meaning to our work and lives as African feminists. Hmm. So I think we will come back to this uh, a bit later, but um, I would like to ask you now about universities, because a lot of feminist knowledge is actually created and nurtured at uh, the universities. And the institution of the universities, uh, university plays uh, a key role in these decolonial reconstructions. Universities can be either reproducing epistemological apartheid, as, uh, as you called it in, uh, in your recent lectures at the University of Ghana, mm -hmm. or contribute to a horizontal exchange between different geopolitical spaces. And this would separate relevant Western knowledge from falsely universalizing and oppressive categorizations and interpretations, as you just explained. Today, academia actually largely reinforces the hegemonic political economy of knowledge production. Institutionalized notions of academic excellence and publishing practices, including peer reviews, mm -hmm. act as a constant gatekeepers against non-Western knowledge and and they intensify commodification of knowledge, which you also actually deal with in your book. Mm. Moreover, a reliance on external research funding results in a Western-centric lens in, uh, in the framing of, of research and uh, defining research agenda. And then in this context, scholars face uh, the career pressures, which actually push them towards this Western uh, biased requirements of academic performance. For example, what publications in what journal count as uh, as uh, academic excellence? Mm -hmm. What research topics stand as a stand a chance to win project funding, etc. So, I would like to ask you, what do you think is the most pressing decolonial challenge for gender studies at African universities in light of these constraints? Is, mm. it, is it possible in this neoliberal university framework mm. uh, actually to strive for, for change and, and decolonization of universities? Oh, you know what, Suzanne? I, I hesitate to give varying weights to the numerous decolonial challenges that we face in academia. But if you really pushed me, I would probably say that the biggest is the failure to unlearn colonial ideologies and to relearn African knowledges. I think that is the biggest challenge. It is that, you know, that inability to shake off dominant rationalities, hegemonic discourses and practices that have become, quote-unquote, common sense, you know, for most Africans, and which do nothing but entrench social inequalities. So even in gender studies classes, you'll find a professor making arguments that are based on colonial logic or conducting research with 
epistemological assumptions based on um, dualistic objectivist stances, or one that valorizes Western worldviews rooted in Judeo-Christian culture with so many buts and howevers and ifs, you know, attached to gender justice. For example, I know that um, many gender studies programs on the continent do not engage with issues of sexuality beyond the subjects of um, reproductive rights or sexual violence. They will not touch them with the longest rod, you know. So they omit any discussion of women, for example, that don't conform to the colonial gender system, such as transgender, you know, mm. or to normal sexual mores, or to normative sexual norms, or to any heteronormative ideals. Therefore, I would say that there is a huge, huge challenge for our gender studies programs on the continent to combine feminist and post-colonial or decolonial lenses, you know, in our understandings of gender injustice. We really need to, to be, to use a, a term that uh, is a favorite of youth, to be very woke, <laughs> to be woke or alert, you know, to issues of coloniality. Hmm. But if I may push um, a little further on this, because I see this like an everyday contradictions that the scholars at the universities face, you know, to comply with these requirements that actually project certain assumptions and and categorizations, mm. and on the other hand, trying to actually unlearn mm. these still yeah. colonial. Yeah metrics of, of thinking. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a big contradiction there. I think what I'm saying is these institutions, including education, including higher education, right from the primary level, but you know, even at the higher education level, they need, the whole system needs to be overhauled. Mm. It needs to be overhauled and we change not only the way that we teach, the, our pedagogical approaches, but also the content of what mm. we teach and how we assess and all those things. So currently, it becomes very difficult, for example, if you want to, to teach in a decolonial, in a decolonial fashion and decolonial content when the, 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 the rules and policies of the university make it very, very difficult for you to do so. So it would take actually leadership, not only university leadership, but national leadership, leadership at the national level, mm. the Ministry of Education, you know, um, the president to, to have, to, very, to be very purposeful in overhauling the whole education system because unfortunately 60 years after independence we are still following the same colonial system that were designed not to um, to hone our create creative juices or to 
give us critical thinking skills, but only, you know, it's about rote learning. Cram, 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 cram. Mm. And what we are cramming is really not in our interest, but it is just entrenching us into um, the global capitalist order. Mm. Yeah. So it needs a, the whole thing needs an overhaul. So let me come back to the notion of sexuality you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's actually in, in your long-term research, you, you focus on issues of sexualities and coloniality of gender. And you argue that African understanding of gender was more fluid and that the binary interpretation of gender and the verification of non-conforming sexualities is a product of a colonialist construction of reality, as you mentioned earlier. Well, interestingly, though, for example, in, in Uganda today, uh, the defense of LGBT plus minorities is regarded as a Western import. Mm. So can you unpack for our audience these contradictions and explain your historicized view on African notions of sexuality and gender? Maybe, um, you know, um, mention like, where do you see these contradictions coming from? Mm. Well, I, I think, you know, I've already uh, touched on the, mm, these African yeah. notions of gender and sexuality, which are more fluid, more pluralistic, and accommodative. But historically, what happened was that the imperialists basically stole what I would call the software of our brains and reconfigured it, totally distorting our ways of thinking, our values, and our principles. They literally fucked up our psyches, you know. As I say in my book, we Af Africans need to return to the annals of history to find ourselves, you know, to acquire critical consciousness and to restore our dignity. So in, in most of Africa, for example, biological sex did not always correspond to ideological gender. The relative flexibility of indigenous gender systems made it possible for women to perform male roles in terms of power and authority over others. And because roles were not rigidly masculinized or feminized, no stigma was attached to breaking gender rules. There are so many examples that exhibit, exhibited such um, gender bending across the continent. From the Otoro of Nubia to the um, Tanala and Bara of Madagascar, and from the Konso and Amhara in Ethiopia to the Wall of, of Senegal, and so many others in between. Now here in Uganda, among the Langi, an alternative gender of what you would maybe term as effeminate males is known as Odokodako, which was fully recognized and these individuals were you know, allowed to marry males. They also performed spiritual and cultural roles. Another feature of um, most African cosmologies, I would say, is that the dead transcend into the spirit world and live on as living ancestors, quote unquote. Ancestors may use any living body 
regardless of sex, as conduits to exercise their agency, you know, through what is known as possession, quote-unquote, you know. So this is why the equivalence of Western secular notions of transgenderism and homosexuality were not unthinkable in African ontological and epistemologic, epistemic framings, you know. The, the ancestral power of the Sangomas of South Africa and their full-fledged transgender statuses, quote, transgender in quotation marks because for lack of a better term, uh, those statuses are, are just one example of what I'm talking about. Now, coming to the contradiction, the apparent contradiction between the importation by the West of both homophobia on the one hand and its current defense on the other can easily be explained. The defense of LGBTIQ rights by the West today is really a result of gains won from a long struggle pioneered by queer, queer activists like Harvey Milk in the 1970s and Marsha Johnson in the 1980s. But you know very well that even today in the West, gay people are the target of right-wing mobilization meant to roll back the legal recognition that gay people have won there. Just check out the number of states in the US which are introducing legislation designed to reverse LGBTIQ victories at the federal level. Mm. In fact, the anti-queer struggle is fundamentally an international one. The only difference is that it started earlier in the West relative to here in Africa, for example, or in post-colonial regions. And that's why they have registered more gains than we have. So in fact, homophobia is only one of the numerous messy realities left behind by the colonialists, which Africa is struggling to clean up. So I don't see it as a contradiction. Mm. Yeah. They, they, it, it, homophobia is alive and well, even in the West. And the LGBTIQ movement in the West is still struggling. They've, they've um, won more victories, as I've said, than we have, because their movement is older than ours. Mm. Yeah. So would you say that actually it is a part of this um, you know, colonial attack on, on the psyche or mind? Because uh, I, I find it interesting that the, the actually homophobic law here is were first introduced, um, you know, during the colonialism as mm -hmm. a colonial mm -hmm. uh, legal rules, mm -hmm. and now they are seen as um, inherent to Ugandan culture. That is that is that is what I was talking about yeah. earlier. That we need clarity on these col colonial, you know, what they did, what they they did to our minds, how they changed our ways of thinking. We really need to undo, you know, the, these. I think it's 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 a responsibility of decolonial scholars in this struggle to raise awareness about, you know, the unfinished decolonization business that Africa needs to engage in. 
you know, clearly revealing the link between neoliberalism and neocolonialism, inequality, populism, and all those other vile isms and phobias. I think it is such engagement, for example, that fueled the fallist movement, you know, um, mm. fees must fall, uh, roads must fall, which erupted in South African universities in 2015. You know, where students, activists, and workers demanded for a decolonized and free education. Mm. So that's what we need. We need, and that's part of the reason why I wrote that book, and that's why I dedicated it to students. We need clarity on these issues. Our eyes have, have we have blinders on our eyes. They, you, you know, they're foggy. We are not clear. I don't know if you saw, was it yesterday or the day before, when young primary school students, you know, were led on the streets shouting, we don't want Ebisiaga, we don't want homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And they go chanting and, you know, they don't even know what they're talking about. Some of them may be gay, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, it is that kind of mentality that, you know, we, we, we continue to be very robotic, mm. you know. So we, we really need to wake up. And and uh, we are still colonizing that way. Our minds are very much still colonized. Well, let me now turn to development policies, which actually also kind of directly impact uh, these uh, dynamics you were talking about. Uh, in your work, you criticize the liaison between feminism and uh, development industry, which brings about a depoliticized application of gender as a sort of like a bureaucratization of gender. And, and this results in the dominance of a donor-driven agenda and uh, what is called NGOization of feminist activism, which in fact sidelines <coughs> the social justice aspects of uh, feminist movement. Today's dominance of uh, developmental feminism, as uh, Amena Mama calls it, is um, then an unintended consequence of feminist dependence on uh, donor funding, external donor funding. So, but it is also an integral part of, uh, of capitalist develop development policies, <coughs> which uh, focus on patching up the holes in the system without addressing the structural root causes of economic maldevelopment in Africa. Mm. So my question would be, how, how do you see the relationship between feminism and development? Mm. It's sort of broad. It mm. depends like uh, mm. what angle do you want to approach feminism it from. Feminism and development. Well, let me talk about modernist development, mm. you know, as conceptualized by the mainstream in the global north, does not in any way excite the colonial feminists. African decolonial feminists at all, you know. It is based on neoliberal assumptions that prioritize economic efficiency based on unhindered markets, profit maximization, deregulation, and privatization, all of which simply entrench heteropatriarchal capitalism, you know. Um, the rhetoric of gender in the male stream is, is still prevalent in development discourses and practice. This advocacy of 
developmental feminism, which simply adds women in the same old, same old exploitative structures, results only in small technical changes. Now, decolonial feminism insists that existing structures themselves must be transformed before the marginalized can even think of participating in them. So structures like the gendered public-private divide, you know, unremunerated caring work performed by women, commodified land ownership, all these things need to change. The education system that I've gone on and on about that continues to churn out you know, uncritical robotic graduates. Um, these foreign alien religions that have enslaved our minds. Mm. Um, neoliberal democracy that is propelled by capitalism and so on and so on. So um, we need structural change before we can even, it's not a question of add and star, you know, add women and star and then you, you, you celebrate that, oh, we have 50-50, you know, representation, for example, in parliament. Mm. It's, 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 a, it's still a parliament that is very skewed in terms of pursuing our interests on the continent. Mm. Yeah, the politics itself needs to change. The way that we elect those representatives in parliament, you know, it's, 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 it's all based on... Um, that, that neoliberal capitalism hmm. its interests and do you agree that uh, this uh, what we we can call developmental feminism is is dominant as a sort of feminist voice on the continent or yes because you know as I've as I've said um, decolonial understanding so decolonial appreciation of decoloniality on the continent is still very, very um, limited. Mm. And you have to appreciate and understand um, you know, decoloniality for you to to, to reject that, that um, the, the, the neoliberal the modernist development which is taught in schools Mm. which is taught in universities and and so you you really need to appreciate the um the political the, the political economy of decolonial development for you to mm. begin you know um uh, appreciating and teaching the kind of development and practicing the kind of development that we need on the continent Unfortunately, most uh, people in charge of our economies, including our banks, the bank managers and CEOs, were all educated in the West and they continue practicing those same principles that um, just entrench our economies into um, the inequalities, the geopolitical inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, Decolonial school of thought originates from a Latin American context, uh, uh, but 
and you said that here in Africa there's still I would say limited um, body of scholarship or support for for decolonial thinking but do you see like a sort of emerging African decolonial school of thought as a, as a new approach of uh, in social sciences and um, research um, first of all I want to set the record straight that mm. regarding that claim that decolonial school of thought originated from Latin America although the term coloniality mm. okay was coined by the Peruvian scholar Anibal Kijano mm-hmm. uh, and of course elaborated by others, you know, like Walter Mignolo, um, Aldonado Torres and so on, in the, in the early 2000s actually. Way back before that, African thinkers had long, you know, before espoused its tenets, you know, Sheikh Anta Diop, Kwame Nkrumah, Leopold Senghor, Steve Biko, Ngugi Wathiongo, along with other diasporic thinkers, such as the Nadal sisters, Jean and Paulette, you know, Franz Fanon, of course, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, I could go on and on. So, yes, they may have coined the term, mm-hmm. you know, coloniality, but um, it, 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 the, the tenets of uh, coloniality were certainly had been espoused before that. Mm. Do I think that it's taking root yeah. in Africa? I think it is, especially uh, I, th- I think especially in South Africa. I think because it is the youngest democracy, um, they, it, it, is, it is taking root there faster than it is, unfortunately, in the rest of the colony. But yes, I think that um, today you will find um, students, young people reading Fanon, for example, in their book clubs. You find, um, you know, young people blogging on, they may not call it uh, coloniality, but aspects of coloniality. Um, I, I don't know if it is that if it has become popularized in universities and schools. I don't think so. It, if, if so, it is too slow. So we need to really accelerate the awareness and you know make it the new religion, basically. Hmm. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, my next question goes deeper in, into this uh, decolonizing of concepts because you are also critical of the concept of gender equality mm. juxtaposing it to a multifaceted uh, concept of gender justice mm. so, and you base your arguments on relation, ontology, ethics and ecology in, in the context of the lived experience of most African women So, but I also find your critique compelling and relevant to other um, geopolitical contexts. So I would like to ask you if you can um, please explain your argument against the concept of gender equality and uh, your proposal for alternative ways towards gender justice. Mm. Well, the, the concept of gender equality is problematic for Africans at several levels. Let me elaborate first. 
its conception as sameness or equivalence is quite off-putting for many Africans because because of its alienating and reductive character. It simply doesn't, it does not resonate with their understandings of justice. Many women see themselves not as equivalent to men, but as playing a complementary role to, to them. So their demand is for dismantling systemic injustices that violate their dignity and human worth as women. Mm. Not, you know, we want to be the same as men, you know. So this, this worldview of complementarity resonates with African values found in concepts like Ubuntu rather than gender equality. Mm. And maybe secondly, gender equality is embedded within the liberally conceived system of human rights. Human rights whose enforcement agenda dangerously, in my view, lies at the mercy of neoliberal capitalism and its callous, insidious governance. So if you, if you have, for example, if you privatize water, like we see happening, you know, yeah. how are you going to the same government that has privatized water and then you demand, you know, the right to water from them? That's what I mean. It, it, human rights defer to, you know, uh, neoliberal capitalism. So, as we all know, such governance has reduced human rights claims for marginal groups like women to a theoretical abstraction, really. African societies had their cultural ways of dealing with inequities that were much, much more effective than elusive rights, such as gender equality. And maybe my final example uh, um, is that the universalistic human rights framework and the essentialism that underlie the concept of gender, you know, gender, and when I talk about gender, gender that, you know, ignores, often ignores diversities based on race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, and so on. These universalistic frameworks and the essentialism I was talking about, they leave many African women in the cold so tell me, empirically, which women should be equal to which men? Moreover, the liberal approach to human rights within which um, gender equality lies subordinates group rights to individual liberties. So Africa's communitarian approach frowns upon such individualistic approaches to justice. Uh, that's why I argue that African women would find a more equitable and just approach in traditional philosophies such as Ubuntu, which promotes humaneness, the well-being of the community, and reconciliation through dialogue and reparations. 
let me now go to my final question. Your book centers uh, on the African macro region, and you conclude uh, it with considerations about um, feminist pan-Africanism. We can argue that horizontal dialogues between different non-hegemonic spaces, including Africa, can contribute to the decentering of knowledge production. And this can open up a space for decolonial imaginaries of an inclusive cosmopolitan future as a new universal project. For example, Achille Membe argues that since decolonization was a project of planetary domination, decolonization has to be a planetary project of a dialectical cosmopolitan reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So how do you see the relationship between decolonization in Africa and other geopolitical non-hegemonic spaces? Latin American context uh, is often seen as a, as a dialogical decolonial partner, but uh, what about other geopolitical locations? Uh, for example, Central and Eastern Europe, where I come from, that's why I'm asking, <laughs> which occupies a, a geopolitical in-between position on the edge of the Western center of uh, knowledge production, representing white, but not Western geopolitical identity. Do you think there is uh, possibilities, there are possibilities of mutual dialogue and learning between Central and Eastern Europe and Sub-Saharan African macro region? Mm. Oh, now I, I must emphasize that the organizing principle of coloniality is racism, okay? Structural gendered racism to be precise. And until the global decolonial movement addresses this pathogenic factor, it is futile for, African, for Africa to partner in any effective way with others in the global south, or even what you refer to as the European geopolitical, quote unquote, geopolitical in-betweens, mm. like the CEE. Of course, it is in the interest of all marginalized societies in the world to join forces in decolonial transformative struggles, no doubt. But the recent revelations from the war in Ukraine were quite telling and clearly demonstrate the complex contradictions involved in such alliances, which largely stem from our different histories of subjugation. So, while we were shocked by the attitudes and treatment of black people as they tried to flee from the war, or even about the stories of Ukrainian refugees in countries like the UK, refusing to be settled in black neighborhoods, this signifies, in my view, that the matter is much, much more complex. How do you expect those that dehumanize and ob objectify black people to genuinely fight along with them in a humanizing and transformative space? In short, what I'm saying, Suzanne, is any mutual dialogue between these two macro regions has to commence from our CCE colleagues, our Latin American colleagues, and so on, acknowledging their own privilege and consciously challenging the power 
and resources that are heaped on them by the same colonial racist system they're fighting. I think there's a great deal of unlearning and relearning necessary in uh, regions like the CEE. The dynamism of racial prejudice is a major intersectional issue um, that has, has very serious implications for such alliances. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on this because um, recently there's um, quite a lot of discussions in CEE, which actually um, uses the decolonial framework and, and the terminology and, and analytical tools. But I think there is this risk that sometimes it sidelines the acknowledgement of, of the privileged position, which comes uh, with this, um, you know, the position as a, like a geopolitical identity mm. white, mm. Yeah. as a hegemonic position. Yeah. So I agree with you that this needs to be the first yeah. acknowledgement as a basis of any fruitful dialogue. Mm. May I ask you, actually, now, at the end of our interview, because at the beginning you mentioned that uh, you retired from uh, from the university, what what are your plans now in your professional life? Oh, I have a list of must-dos that have, things that I've always wanted to do, but had no time when I was still um, institutionally employed. Um, it's, it's almost coming to a year now. I haven't touched even one of them. <laughs> but what I really want to do is, you know, you, you realize how short life is. And actually enrolling for Swahili classes is not the best way to learn a language. I think the best way to learn a language is to immerse yourself. So I want to go to Tanzania because the best, purest Swahili is in Tanzania. I want to go and... Um, just live there for two months mm. and learn the language, you know. Um, I think it's a beautiful language. I think Africans, as Africans, we need to have a language that unifies us. And I think, obviously, in East Africa, it is Swahili. But in Uganda, as you know, Swahili is not, you know, widely spoken. It's, it's Here, it... it, it it arrived in Uganda as mostly as a martial language for the army, mm. for the police. And given the, our history, you know, our dictatorships and so on, most, uh, most Ugandans abhor Swahili because mm. of that. But, you know, it doesn't take away from its beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful language. So I want to learn Swahili. I haven't started. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. I will have to enroll for guitar classes. I am very, very interested in, in um, space astronomy. The stars, space, you know, when you realize we are very small speck, our continent, our continent is a very, very small speck in the big, wide universe. It, it, it fascinates me. So I want to, to get into astronomy. I want to get myself a very powerful telescope. 
and be able to watch the stars. Doesn't it fascinate you that when you look at a star, you're actually looking at a, a star that died millions of years ago? But, you know, mm. uh, what else? I Photography is another passion. I'll, I want to be able to do it professionally, get myself a very good camera. Um, yeah, what else? There are several things. But yeah, I just want to relax and enjoy my evening, the evening of my life. <laughs> so we can say that the book was actually sort of um, like a, your closing word. Yeah, yeah. I said, what, what, what I have taught for, I, I taught for 36 years. I said, what am I leaving as my legacy? So that's why I took a sabbatical, um, you know, in... in 2019 and just went away and wrote that book and dedicated it to young people, students of Africa. Hopefully, hopefully it will shift something in their brains and reconfigure it and make them proud of their, to, to, to rediscover their history and be proud and uh, as dignified people despite how the world portrays us. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I can recommend the, the book to everybody. And I can tell you that actually I was reading parts of it with students and they loved it and really felt like engaged in, oh, in really? the discussion about that. That's good. So that's yeah, sometimes I, I, once in a while I get an email from all over the world, you know, from Asia, from America, from, you know, some lecturer, some professor telling me, oh, your book, and that really warms my heart. So hope it's a, it's a small drop in the ocean, but mm. yeah, we, we have to start somewhere. Mm. Okay, thank you very much for, for the interview. Thank you too. Such interviews, you know, they, 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 they spark off my brain cells and this go into all kinds of directions so yeah thank you too it helps me to reflect yeah i was very much looking forward to our discussion <laughs> you're welcome thank you